I'm so honored and and you know so excited to have you here. It's been a long time coming. I want to introduce everyone to D. Anthony Evans. He's one of my heroes, and when I met him, um, I was at the Pan African Film Festival premiering my last film, The Cuban. I walk into this trailer where uh, Mr. Lugasa Jr. was sitting, and all of a sudden, Dean starts telling his story. I see this guy's huge, right? Intimidating, and I'm like, who's this guy? And within 10 minutes, the room went silent. There was 20 people gathered around looking at these photos, and we were all riveted. And then we were in tears, and it's just like, man, you know, when someone has that kind of energy and that power to transform, to knock you out of your state and to kind of shift your paradigm completely, like you think you got problems, listen to this and you, you think you have courage. So I, I'm really um, excited to have you here, man, and I appreciate your time. And I, I just want to jump in and have you introduce yourself and tell your story. Thank you, Serge. Yes, it has been an amazing inspirational and thriving journey but Sergio I must tell you brother as many accolades as you've given me I respect what you do um, in, in the art of storytelling on so many levels um, what you did with the Cuban and, and showing the perspective of, of everybody has that older um, relative that that is is reaching the end that most people, don't want to be bothered with, unfortunately, and they end up in these facilities. And nobody covers these stories and, and the things that happens, or if they do, it's always negative. Somehow, you took a guy who was full of life, who was stuck in his home, that's dead, his jury, everybody's negative and on medicine, and brought him back to life on the screen, where he was really living his, his second childhood. And when I, when I, when I saw the Cuban, um, like he said, we're at the Pan, um, American Film Festival, or Pan African Film Festival, rather, and, you know, we're, we're sitting there screening it, and I'm just looking, and I'm looking, he's standing next to me, and my wife is like, she tapped me, she whispered, that's him. The guy right, yeah, that's, he's, this is it, that's Sergio. I said, wow. And I'm just watching this amazing depiction of a relationship with a with a caregiver and, and an elderly gentleman just take over my soul. And for you to choose that to do rather than some easier action or, or something that, that might have monetarily been a better investment, if you will, um, and you didn't. You did something that every family needs to see, and that's their elderly family member like aging in an amazing way in, in, in a difficult situation. So I just want to tell you, I respect y'all because I'm a storyteller too. I'm, I'm just more of a, you know, a poet and I, I paint pictures with words, but in a different way. But what we do to me are in the same vein. And, and I believe God chose us because a lot of people can't paint pictures without paint. They just, they just can't. And, and somehow, we, we've been able to figure that out and meet at the crossroad. Um, so thank you for having me. And I just want to tell you, I respect you too, brother, with the utmost. Your craft, your skill set, um, and your ability to give me positive or negative feedback when I ask you a question. So thank you for having me. 
and I and I'm ready to spill my guts in hopes that it it inspires somebody not to give up. I mean, it's really as simple as that. It's amazing. And to look at you, someone will say, "Wow, he's super athletic and shape." And I was reading something that you know you when when you say the sport that you're in, you're in the sport of life. Like, why are you training? You know, like when I look at your social media, I'm like, damn, he's up at 4 a.m. He's doing these vigorous workouts. What is going on? So take us take us back, you know, to um, we'll call it the pre-seed era, the pre-cancer. Uh, take us back to Chicago, where you were, you know, just like obsessed with the gym, and talk to us about where you were prior. Statistically, I really wasn't even supposed to make it to the cancer fight. There was so much trauma and turbulence, you know, early on. Um, I come from a, a, a single parent home, a single black mother in Chicago that had AIDS and HIV in, in, in the 90s. And this is when the world and, and the country were ignorant and scared. So if you said that you had AIDS or HIV or hinted or any of that, unbeknownst to you, people would create space and you would find yourself alienated or marginalized either as a gay person or, or a heroin addict that shared needles. My mother got her, her infection, um, you know, you know, through a different way. And, and it was through being a good person with a good person that was living another lifestyle. Um, but with all that being said, man, this woman gave me an education the first 16 years of my life that nothing I've learned since then has stood up to. Just bottom line. My mother um, was my mother and my father. And she worked very hard, but we, we were poor. And I didn't know that she was sick until six months before she died because my father was already in prison. Like growing up was taking a train, two buses and another train to Southern Illinois to visit my father in prison. Like that's what I was doing in elementary school. And and this woman, I, I was saying to myself, like, this dude has never done anything for us. But having a relationship with him was was at the top of her priority list. And I could never understand why she was why she wanted this so much for somebody who never cared about us. But my upbringing was very rocky and turbulent um, between my mother, you know, being single and sick and me not knowing why we were struggling so hard. And she was very elusive as far as keeping her sickness from me. Um, but I was also born with the, with the rare neurological disorder. It's called neurofibromatosis. And what neurofibromatosis does is it creates tumors that pop up on your peripheral nerves anywhere in your body without notice. Um, I was one of the my mom kind of made it clear that, look, the only way we're getting out of this situation is through your education or basketball. And I'm frankly not counting on basketball. So as my story goes along, I did end up on the street. But prior to her death, I was a nerd. 
I had to be home before the street lights came on and I was in all honors classes because that's what she commanded. Like, because getting us out of poverty was suddenly my job. And when you get up every morning and you know that you're the reason your mother is either going to smile or cry, it instills a different type of fire in you, even if you're nine, 10, wow. 11, eight. It it puts something like it's on me at a very young age. So what is Dewan doing? Dewan is doing toe-ups because he saw Michael Jordan doing them on his special when he got cut sophomore year. I'm doing 100, 200, 300 toe raisers before bed. By seventh grade, I could dunk a volleyball with two hands. Wow. By eighth grade, I was doing windmills. And 360s, okay, where I'm from. I wasn't the best shooting person, but I would have made a hell of a Dennis Rodman. I'm going to get that last rebound. And I was cool with that because I didn't have a father to show me the fundamentals. All the kids that were a little ahead of me, I could jump, I could dunk, but I had to get to the rim. And I didn't really have, you know, my skills weren't there. But my coach said, listen, Evans. There's a spot on every team for the kid that gets every rebound, hustles for every loose ball, calls the timeout. There's a spot for you if you keep working. Wow. So that's what I was holding on to. I wasn't trying to be Michael Jordan. I wasn't trying to be any of the show. I just wanted to be a part of the team and make it. Um, so that was my goal set very early on. School and basketball. School and basketball. And then I had to kind of estimate what must have happened because then we started going to church three times a week. After Fridays used to be where the family and her friends would come over and play cards. They're drinking beer. She stopped drinking, smoking, and we were at church three times a week. She didn't say because she was sick. She just all of a sudden, and I'm not thinking she's sick. And so she's, I'm, I'm just like, okay, I, it's not like I haven't, opinion or a say so in this, I guess we're doing church now. <laughs> hey, <it's a laughs> yes. The bell choir, the regular choir, the man, you name it, I was in it. Cause I didn't have a choice. So I come from the philosophy, like instead of going against the wave, at some point you're gonna drown. So if you can figure out how to get a surfboard and hop on top of it and just ride and you know to me, that has worked out a, a lot better. But moving along, things are what I think is normal. Uh, is normal until I go visiting other people's houses and realize that we're really poor. Like when I first saw a shower in, in somebody's house, I thought that only happened on TV, and they didn't have to warm up the water for the tub, and like you didn't have to share water because it was gonna get cold. Or everybody doesn't, you know, like not pay their light bills so they can pay this and we can go on a trip in the summer. Like I thought everybody used candles in August. And and, and when I really understood, man, how bad, this is how amazing she was. We was poor, but poor was cool. This was, and I was born on her birthday. So it's like being raised by yourself that has already been raised. And that's why I clung to her so much. Even though we bumped heads, the feeling of, of how she educated me 
it was like I wanted more. I wanted more because when she walked in a room, the whole room stopped. When she stood up in church, everybody stopped talking. She just commanded a type of attention that I, I've never seen before while she's dying. And I didn't even know that. Well, let's get to when Magic Johnson came out. This is sophomore year and I'm in my room and I hear her bawling and I'm like, man, that sounds like mom was at the TV. I hear sniffling and then I run into the living room like, what was going on? And a, a silence. She looks back at the TV. I look, I hear what he says on the bottom of the screen. Magic Johnson announces he is HIV positive or have AIDS, whatever it said. And she turned around and looked at me, Sergio, and said, man, I have it too, Duan. And I got to tell you, bro, all the energy in my body, man, just left me. It's like it's leaving me right now. It was like, what? And then I had flashbacks of different instances, like in that moment of her getting, like hitting me because I drank behind her. And it was a rule that you can't eat after me or drink after me. What parent doesn't allow their kid to use their fork or drink from their pop can? And I just remembered a whole bunch of instances. And I was like, man, man. And it's years. And I'm like, what, all this time? And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, Sergio. The, the most painful thing about my mom is that because I didn't know where she was at in her fight, she, she fought AIDS for eight years, man, in the 90s. Just did what I did with, with bone cancer. I don't know how. She's the reason that AZT and, and all those other drugs, you know, got approved. She's from that patient base in the 80s and 90s that were the lab rats so everybody can be on these commercials today talking about we're living great with it. And that, that's because of my mom and her generation of people that put their bodies on the line so you can have an amazing life and live with it like the chicken pox. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is who this woman is. And... I didn't get to spend, I didn't, it's not I didn't get to spend. I didn't, I felt like I was busy being a kid in, in basketball camp and I didn't spend the time that I feel like I could have spent with her because I didn't know she was leaving. So she told me and then literally, bro, six months later, September 13th, the second week of my junior year in high school, the most important year of everybody's life, I went to the hospital to meet her for a routine transfusion like we did every couple months. And when I walked in that hospital and met her, I did not know we weren't going home together, brother. I, I'm just going out to this routine. This, and she says what she says during everyone. Our reverend, who is my godfather, is on one side of the bed. I'm on the other. She's holding both of our hands. She's like, if I don't make it, brother Mike, make sure you take care of Dewan. Dewan, make sure you look. And we both looking at her like, you're going to be fine. Will you stop talking like this? And it was a joke. We done did this before, Sergio. And a few hours passed, and this time she didn't come back out. The guy in the white coat came out. I didn't even get to tell her goodbye. Like, it's literally transformed my life 
from not even a regular kid to an orphan overnight. Like literally, I was orphaned overnight. This was my structure. This was my mother. This was my father. This was the only reason I was getting up and going so hard in the morning. My whole structure and foundation just gone. And as you can imagine, it made me very angry. It made me very angry. I, I did not understand. We go to church three times a week. I mean, God, what is she doing? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, we in church, like, all the time. So, so I, I just, I couldn't put it together. I'm like, we in church. Like, I see all this negativity and people thriving in there. And, and she go to church three times a week. And she's dead. And I, I was angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at her. I was just angry, brother. So I had a 4.0. That's what you had to maintain to be in this program I was in that she made me be in called STAE. Steps Toward Academic Excellency. S-T-A-E. It's a, a program for minorities to, that they kind of recruit you in, in elementary school and hold your hand. You know, I, you know and will pay for any college in the world should you complete the program. I was 11 months out. Could have went to London, do anywhere. Wow. Because I'd been in this program for seven years and, and, and stayed within the prerequisites that they required to pay for your card and did everything that she told me to do, Sergio. And she died, man. And I was like, this was all for nothing. And I got really, really angry. I dropped out of school. I believe that we all have decisions and I made the decision to allow the street gang to have been because they're all my friends. I mean, you live in a neighborhood. It's not really a choice because you're going to get beat up for walking with that group to school anyway in Chicago. People don't understand. Like, you don't, you can't just be neutral. It's not how it works where we're from. And nobody talks about that. You can't, there's no buses. You have to walk. And if you're not walking with the group, you become food. It is a tough environment just walking to school. So then you get generalized from the other kids, from the, uh-oh, he's with them. And you're not even with them, but those are your friends. And you don't stop being friends because they made bad decisions when you're 14, 15. You just, just not how it works. You're there for your friends. So now the gang looked appealing. I have nobody. This is the thing, Sergio. I didn't. I wasn't a thug. You know, I had to be home before the streetlights. I couldn't eat sugar. I couldn't watch our movies. This is who this woman was. And now I find myself orphan, young, 16 years old, think I'm grown. All my friends and doing what they're doing. And everybody left me alone. They understood what my mission was. And now I'm like, I want in. They like, nah, D, you just met. I want in. Nah. And they, everybody tried to not let me in. I was like, either y'all gonna let me in. I'm gonna just try to figure this out, man. This, uh, and that's how my whole street introduction happened. But I had to learn how to be that guy. Because that's not who I am. Or how I was raised, but I don't have any parents. I don't have anywhere to live now, and I'm in Chicago, and it, things just don't work themselves out. <laughs> That's it's just not real. That's for sure. It's just not real. So I had a mind, and the older people 
in my situation was like, man, you need to go back to school. They made me go back to school, Sergio, and told me if I didn't graduate, that meant I had to make up a year and a half work in like six months. Because I done dropped out, ran through the street, went and plugged into them, and then only to get to the table with the men. And they're like, uh-uh, we got enough soldiers. We don't have any lawyers. We don't have any doctors. We don't have any accountants. Like, you're intelligent. If you see him not in school, smash him. That was what the fear that was put in me. So as I thought I escaped from school, the street guys are like, man, take your ass back to school. And I made up a year and a half worth of work. I had to get with the, the pregnancy counselors. Like, if you get pregnant in high school, you know, you do your work at home. I had to go to the dean and be like, look, I have to graduate. I didn't tell him why. He's like, no, I think you should take. I said, listen, I got to graduate. And he introduced me to the tutors that tutored the pregnant girls at home. And I, I, I walked the stage. I walked the stage after dropping out September 13th and coming back in the middle of my senior year and made up all that work by the deadline to walk the stage. Wow. But that didn't mean that I changed what I, I, I got really good at what I was doing. Even though I was in school, they trusted me and they trained me and they instilled it. Like my friends were 40 when I was 16, if you can understand. And, and it's because they, what everybody else sees, like my work ethic, when you show me something or teach me something, my mother always taught me, look, Duan, because she was a florist on the weekends. That was her passion. She had a little company called Lay Fluors. We did all the African-American funerals, weddings. Uh, she did a couple bar mitzvahs. But on, on where we were from, you you go to my mom. She's going to hook you up. She's going to hook your event up. Like we're, I'm supposed to be a florist. That's what she wanted for me on top of the school. You need to learn this. And and now when I'm preparing food, I find myself backing up off. I'm looking at so long. But that's not, that's not right on the plate. <laughs> and I see myself in her arranging food, Sergio. It's a little craziness with myself. But that was my mom's side hustle, was to hustle flowers. So when I got into what I got into, I just became very, very good at it, Sergio, unfortunately. But honestly, I was so angry that I didn't expect it to live past 21. Like, this was the 90s in Chicago. I think we hit murder capital three or four times. It was a killing field, and I, I was already angry. But somehow, because my mother always taught me from her business, when you're dealing with people, make them feel like they got more than what they paid for. No matter, Or if it's even free, make sure they feel better than they did before they start talking to you. Like that was her business. That was her only business. To me, that was the center of her business skill set because people attracted to that. She always gave you more for less. And nowadays, it's give you less for more. Like that's generally where we're at. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get back in my mission to give because there's enough money. It's just greed. 
everybody could use a surplus. You could use a couple more lettuce leaves or you could use a couple more, but all these forms keep us formed in. And, and I aim to change that, Sergio, only because my mom and the service that I saw, not what she told me, it's me watching her in front of my high school with the megaphone, condoms, and HIV prevention literature. The most embarrassing, this was embarrassing. I'm like, Mom, why are you in front of the school? Dewan, I'm on a mission. You know, and I don't care who else knows. She did not care that everybody we knew was going to stop talking to us. She got in front of my school, walked up and down, up and down. Speaking the message of you need to protect yourself. This can happen to you. She went to the Board of Education. She got them to implement HIV prevention training in District 65. Like it went to war with them and won. And still today, it's in that, still today, like the work that she did is in the schools right now. And so, People are always like, man, how do you do this in the public eye? And I'll be like, man, it's it's literally all I know. All I know is helping people because that's all I saw my mom do. And we didn't have anything. She's always giving my stuff away and we didn't have anything. And then when I got older and I went through my situation, you know, and I got sick, it all made sense. You know, it was one, it was two ways to look at it. It was either you're going to get wrapped up in what you're going through or you're going to do what you saw your teacher do. And that's help people. And then I start reading and studying. And then you can't really focus on yourself when you've dedicated your life to serving others. It's just really hard to focus on yourself. But let me wrap up the pre side of where I'm at. Um, it took a suicide attempt to wake me up, though, um, because I never grieved. I started making a lot of money. You know, I was 18 years old. I had a two-bedroom apartment with a full studio. Like, everybody coming to D's, he's the kid with no parents and the mystery money. Um, and that's who I'm, I'm still known as, as much as I try to get away from it. Um, but that's who I was known for. That having money comes with a certain type of facade you have to, and I'm going to call it a facade because it wasn't me, but you have to act a certain way or you become food. I was 155 pounds at the time. I, I was not the guy you see today. I was skinning bones like Snoop Dogg. So, you know, I'm not going to get into, I just had a passion, not for using the guns, if you came to my house, you were gonna you gonna know, and you were gonna go talk about it. <laughs> I just know how humans are. That you're gonna go be like, man, I don't know what who that dude is waiting for, but there's like 25 guns lined around the studio. They're not loaded, but they, I know what I was doing. I was scared myself, but I know if you knew what was in here, you're not gonna think about coming to get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how my situation was set up. But what I want to get into is how not grieving ultimately led me to a suicide attempt. So, you know, she died and 
naturally get mad. Do you need to get in therapy? You need to talk about it. I'm fine. Oh, yeah, she's gone, but she's right here in my heart. I'm saying all the stuff you're supposed to say as a man. And it was all wrong. That way of thinking almost killed me. It almost took me out. Did you have people around you, like uh, like a minister, the elders in the community, anybody talking to you, I had, mentoring you through that? Yeah, but you got to receive the help. That's right. My mom left me, quote unquote, if something happened to her and her, her last rights or whatever. Like my aunt knew she, everybody knew she was dying but me. And so they had talked and she was like, man, your mom wanted you to come live with me. This is the aunt that has no kids. <laughs> How you going to become a, a, a parent to a 16-year-old and you've never had, you're my favorite aunt, but as a mom, I don't know. And so I tried that, okay? That lasted about 25 days. Um, and she kicked me out because she was saying, look, you're going to stay in my house. I said, I'm paying half the rent, though. Still, I'm the adult. And when we went into that. I have to check in, and I can't stay out overnight. And she kicked me out. I don't say I left. I just didn't obey her. And she was like, you got to go. This ain't going to work. And I was like, all right, I love you. And, and I left. And, and I was homeless for, for a minute there. And then the reverend, um, you know, he offered. I'm not going to live with no reverend at 16 either, Sergio. No. That just wasn't. No. And then I'm not going to live with granny either. Man, they're in the <laughs> church. And I'm, I, I said, and my mom's dead. I'm doing all this holy stuff, man. It didn't work. She's dead. And we did everything you're supposed to do holy. And it, man, she's still not here. So I didn't turn my back on God. But my relationship in that space, I was angry. Like, what type of God takes an angel that's trying to save people? Like, it just didn't. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and so, you know, eventually, about 30 days later, I convinced the reverend to get the apartment that I talk about in his name. And, you know, he enabled me. I know that in reflection. But he also knew that if he didn't do it for me, I'm a very resourceful young man. And I was going to figure out how to have somewhere to live in somebody else's name. And, and and he did it for me, and I appreciate him. Like I, I, if it wasn't for even my aunt, man, she tried. It was me. Like I'm taking full responsibility. It was me, Sergio. I was the problem. But it was because I didn't grieve, and so I found myself in this journey every year that I couldn't kind of finish. In the sense that her death date is September 13th. And I would submerge myself in drugs and alcohol, just get blasted, a pile of cocaine and a fifth and a bunch of pictures and some candles and just get obliterated, not to get high, but to get numb. So I don't do something crazy because I'm angry on, on, on this trigger date. And then I'd get high, be stuck, and then I'd be good in two days and I'd be fine. It's not like I'm doing drugs to do drugs. I'm doing drugs because I know what they're going to do to my mind. They're going to stop it. And I'll be good till um, December 21st, which is our joint birthday. Bro, you know what it's like waking up on your birthday that you've shared with another person. She happens to be your mother. 
your entire life and then wake up and you doing it by yourself all of a sudden, man, brother, I can't even put it into words what, what, what it did inside of me. But the way I dealt with it is some drugs, get some alcohol, do your ritual. And that worked for about five years. But there was one more trigger date, and that's Mother's Day. And if you look at them, they're spaced out perfectly throughout the year. So I could only get like three months. I only get three regular months before I got to go ape shit and get my stuff together. It's just was a a treacherous circle. I tried. And then on my 21st birthday, I woke up in Alexian um, Behavioral Health Center strapped to a gurney. Like strapped to a gurney. Cussing expletives. Man, what? Where the hell am I at? Sergio, I apparently in my drug-induced uh, memorial, took everything in the medicine cabinet and had decided that this was wow. it and tried to end my life. Like people talk about suicide, and I'm going to do it. I, no, I did it and woke up. Wow. That's how we know why I'm here. Like I don't know nobody who's like, yeah, I was going to kill myself, and then I did it. And then they can tell you that it didn't work. I'm sorry. But I woke up. And this is when my life changed. And this is why I know that intake nurse doctor was God. So I'm in there, angry as usual. And the nurse is taking down my stuff. She's trying to take blood out of my arm. The cocaine in my body is at a concentrate so thick that she can't draw blood from my veins. Wow. This is where I was at, Sergio. Had all the money in the world still. Still. It didn't do anything because I still tried to kill. Now, I killed myself, but somehow I woke up. Okay, God took everything. Everything. Everything, brother. At that time, Norco, Percocet, Oxycontin, Neurontin, Selexin, Rimron. When you have my disease, that is your cocktail forever. I took all of the bottles wow. and woke up. With charcoal in my mouth, angry that I couldn't kill myself the correct way. And the nurse is like, I'm going to have the doctor be over here in a second. Now, everybody knows in these type of facilities, this is basically, this is they see this all the time. This is a revolving door. So don't get attached because this is what they do. These are dope things. I don't know why I didn't fit the dope scene criteria where you just brush me off because this man, hello, Mr. Evans, how are you, Doc? And I I try to play, not play nice, but I I just know how this is going to go. I need to be nice until he tells me you're not going nowhere. So he's like, hey, I'm like, hey. (laughs) He's like, like, man, you had a rough night, yeah. um, Yeah, but I'm I'm feeling feeling better. Yeah, it's just my my mom's death. Our birthday, and he said, "Yeah, I know it's your birthday, it's really." But I said, "Yeah, I was born on a birthday, but I'm ready. I'm ready. You see, I'm I'm good. I'm still strapped. I'm, you know, I'm good." He's like, "No, Mr. Evans, I, I I'd like you to stay a few days, and then that's when my fake smile <laughs> turned into straight. What What do you mean, Doc? I, I mean, like, I I think you need to, you know, detox." Just get your get your mind. You know, you have like all the opiates in your system. You have cocaine. You have every drug there is 
in your system and your blood is really not pumping. Like, I don't know why you haven't gone into cardiac arrest because it was hard for the nurse to extract blood from you, meaning that your blood is very thick, there's no water in it, and there's a significant amount of concentrated something in it. He said, that's usually when you go into a seizure, um, but for some reason, you're, you're, you're fine. He said, I'd like you to stay. Um, just, just give me a few days. I said, look, Doc, I have things to do. Um, I, I appreciate what you guys have done, but I can't stay here. Like, what do you, what do you mean stay here? He's like, they got some groups. That's some, so when he went in, when he said the group, which is AKA therapy, I was like, Scatter! <laughs> I said, Doc, look, man, I'm not going to no groups. Look, I, I'm, I'm fine. I appreciate it. Just let me out of it. And then I started to let me out of this, the restraints. And then he's like, I can't let you out of the restraints. When he said he couldn't let me out of the restraints, Sergio, I start expletiving him expeditiously. <laughs> I just look, man, <laughs> and that's what he told me. Look, Mr. Evans, this is going to go one or two ways because you clearly don't know the law in Illinois. The only two prerequisites I need to become your father and become power of attorney in the state of Illinois is that you came in here combative, which put the staff at risk, and you tried to hurt yourself. You've met both of those standards, and it's nothing for me to get on the phone and get on emergency judge to write this injunction, and you will be here indefinitely. I told him to go fuck himself, and he said, well, that's what it is. Take him to his room. Hey, bro. Hey, they took me to my room. It's in this locked floor of every hospital. The one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh, my God. Floor. What didn't put me in the one flew over the cuckoo's nest wing? My first three weeks had me on the side with the manic depressives, the dopes, the at-risk teenagers, the alcoholics. I'm like, man, this is kind of my, my community on the street. Like, I'm cool here. Um, and it didn't break me. And so at three weeks, and, and this is, um, so I'm, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to group, but I might as well make the best of it. So as you see my energy now, I got all the dope. Everybody loves D. And he's like, this dude thinks this is a joke. So he transfers me to the one floor of the cuckoo's nest side with the real people with issues. And Sergio, that's when I knew that my craziness had a limit. I just got to tell you, like, my, <laughs> I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy, you, you know, because I get over there. Good morning. Hey, hey. Stone face, talking to corners, talking to sinkheads. They had, back then, they had the cigarette. You could smoke. This how, this how you know it was bad. You could smoke on that floor in the hospital. Bro, I think. I lasted two days, and when I, I start seeing people, like, fighting and having these tantrums, and nobody was getting in trouble, it was just like, man, this is just animal houses. Everybody's sick, and they expect it, and I, that's when I called the nurse, and I said, man, can you page my doctor? It took three weeks. He broke me. He's like, you had enough? I said, yeah, <laughs> just get me back on the other side. I, I'm sorry. I'm ready to go to group. 
it's something's gonna happen to me. I was I couldn't sleep because nobody's normal, yo. Like the, you don't want to sleep because you don't know what's happening. And so about a third day of not really sleeping, you'd be like, man, you can't close your eyes because you don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> and in group, I learned how to grieve. Like my whole problem was I never addressed her dying. I never addressed her dying. So anybody watching this, I want you to understand that we're all going to lose people. But there's like five degrees of grieving. You don't have to do them all. But I'll tell you, if you don't do any, it's going to present itself in the worst way you least expect it. That, that's just the bottom line. I never could have foreseen that my therapeutic way of dealing with this was going to fail me on my birthday and I was going to end up in Alexian Brothers Behavior Health Center, you know, on Suicide Watch. Um, I, I just encourage anybody going through anything that has to do with grief. It's not going to evaporate. It's not going to disappear. A matter of fact, the more days that you ignore it, think of a snowball. And, and, and say the snowball's at the top of the hill. And each inch as it rolls toward the bottom, it gets bigger because it's gathering snow as it rolls. And eventually that snowball is a boulder that's uncontrollable and anything in its way is going to smash. That's your grief. That's your grief. And every day you don't deal with it, that snowball gets bigger. It would destroy you. It would destroy the people you love. It would destroy your business. This was the turning point of my life, was dealing with loss the correct way. Because I was the strongest person I knew to the outside world. But in my heart, I was a broken, like bird. I was broken. I was broken. So how do you go from that to, I mean, you're you're kind of like surrounded by people transitioning some make it through cancer some don't it's part of life and you seem to have a healthy relation like you have a different mindset around that process of transition whether it's spiritual whatever it is um how do but you, you do it in such a tender way with your heart you lead with your heart i've seen it firsthand where you know someone needs your help and coaching and you're right there and you do it with such compassion and love and where are you now? How, how do you see death now? Because uh, I think we all struggle with it. That's a, that's a beautiful question. Um, I think now I understand like who I am. When you're mentored by a monk, you kind of it's all about perspective. Begin to know what you think you know is really nothing. Because death, if you look at it as the end, it will be the end. But if you understand that you have a false self and a and, and, and a true self and your true self being that light and being the attributes and being the behavior that you hold yourself and your life and, and, and your whole spirit to. Okay. And then you have the reptile side of you. We all have light and dark in us. Um, everybody, but, but you can use that to keep you, you know, in line. Or you can use it as temptation and make bad decisions. But the dying part of everything, I don't, you can't kill a light. Lights don't die. My perception of life and death 
have just transcended. Like it's not the same thing. I'm on a journey. Like this isn't a life. This is an experience right now. But just like the life that was in me that allows, you know, the perpetual function of one inhale, one exhale, that's oxygen and CO2 just oscillating perpetually for, for, for as long as we're here. And if you understand that nothing can last forever and know that there's somewhere else that we're going and you understand that we're already in space, like Earth is floating in space right now. But nobody really looks at life like that. And once my brain expanded, it was hard to come back right here and look through this lens. So when people die now, yeah, it affects me. But that's from a selfish standpoint. Because I know that the divine makes no mistakes, even with my mother. Like my mother had to die so I could be here because she would have forced me to do chemo. She would have never been like, you're not listening to your doctor and, 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 and like supported that. Like I didn't listen to my doctor. Okay. And I would have never broken my mother's heart under any, I would have just did the chemo because it would have broke her heart to not listen to her. She had to die at 35 years old. I was told I was going to die at 35 years old, Sergio. Wow. I changed my history because I made a different decision. I did what nobody does. Nobody goes against their doctor when they tell, when he tells you you have six months to live. I haven't met no human. I haven't met one. I haven't seen a story where you get advice from a $13 billion facility and the number one pediatric neurologist in the world. And you're like, thank you, doc. I love you, but no, thank you. I'm going to listen to the monk. Wow. We're not trained to do that. And it's the difference in me being here. Nobody documents their entire journey when they're supposed to die in June. I never, he said I was dying in June. We never thought we were dying in June. Just to give people perspective, we're talking about 11 surgeries and 385 tumors that were removed from your body? Yes, sir. And you refused the treat, the, the chemo? I refused the chemo. And to be perfectly honest, part of it is is because of who I am. But part of it is because when I was 12, I was told that I've had cancer by 18 and be blind. And then 18 came. I'm dealing with my mom. I'm not even thinking about this stupid disease. You, you know what I'm saying? But I'm alive. Then 25 came and I'm alive. Yeah, things are hurting. They're doing what you do because this is part of your peripheral nerve system. And as you develop, the nutrients created develops. And so, yeah, I'm I'm moving through um, that that transition. And you know, it's perplexing in the sense that nobody before me has lived like historically. There is nobody that has had malignant peripheral, and it chokes me up because I got a lot of survivor's guilt. I've been waiting 30 years to fight something, and then it was finally my time. And I told myself, when I ever get my shot, because I've watched my whole community listen to my doctor, he can only recommend what he can recommend, and they all die. 
Like there's no successful, there's not one case like, not one, not one, nowhere, never. And I said to myself, when it's my turn, I have nothing to lose by simply doing something else. And he even says it, and I know he got in trouble for saying it. He kind of snapped me in the CBS interview. He said, DeWine took a different approach and came up with some positive results through diet and exercise. He said seven words. He wouldn't say nothing more than that. But that validated everything I had been doing. And then when Derek Young, the reporter, asked him, so if I asked you if he'll beat it or not, what would you say? For him to say he'll beat it is huge because you don't beat aggressive bone cancer. Anybody watching, Google aggressive M-P-N-S-T. That's malignant peripheral neurological sheath tumor. It's one of the worst cancers on the planet. Post-operation life expectancy is zero to six years. Zero, meaning it was two pounds, seven centimeters, like what they took out of me. And six years, meaning it was atypia, and, and they caught it early. Atypia is just means some abnormality in the cells, which is pre-cancer, but usually they convert. And, and, and that just wasn't the case. I was full blown stage 10. Wow. Like my tumor looked like it was on a grill. It was black. Okay, I know what cancer looks like. And a lot of people say that because I have pictures. You know, why I have pictures. They were taking the pictures. Why were they taking the pictures? Because this has never happened before. They didn't want to tell me that. What we're doing to you, we've never done. And I'm going to tell you, sir, we didn't even get into the what happened. But let me just start real quick. I'm going to run through it. January 4th of 2012, I walked in the University of Chicago experiencing extreme back pain. The pain was equivalent to a cat tearing its way out of my back. And you were going to the gym. Like, I saw pictures. You were a big boy. Yes. Yeah, I was a huge boy. And what's crazy is the guy in treatment that turned me on to training, we didn't get into that. Like, how I started training was because I was locked in that place. And my roommate had just come from prison. And he scared me. Again, I was 155, and he'd be like, come spot me. I'm like, I play basketball. Come spot me. Okay. <laughs> I went inside the I went and spot because it didn't matter who you are in the street. This dude's sleeping next to you. And, hey, listen. So my little bony self go down there with you. And then like week two, he's like, man, I want you to, you know, I want, I want you to give it a shot. Really, it's good for your brain and, and stress. I'm like, bro, I'm not into the muscles. He's like, I think you should give it a shot. Does he like to talk with the deep voice? Here's a good motivator. <laughs> okay. Um, and then he introduced me. He said, this was this was my crash course to weights and training. He said, we beat the muscle up, we feed it, it comes back bigger. I said, what? We beat the muscle up, we feed it, then it comes back bigger. And we just keep doing that process. I said, okay, that's not real elaborate. He said, no, nah, it's real easy. You just eat a bunch, you eat, you eat, you eat, you beat the muscle up. And I said, okay. He said, so when we go down here for for lunch, I want you to do times two on the menu. Oh, man. 
I said, for what? He said, because you need calories. I said, times two. He said, yeah, you need to gain some weight to push some weight. I said, all right. And he said, man, I got some creads in too. I'm like, what is that? Man, it's something that creates water in your muscles. It gives you a little boost. And it's giving me this crash course on gym one-on-one that I was totally against. I'm a baller. I'll dunk on you. I'm not into this, whatever you're talking about. But I'm scared of you. So by the time I left there, I was 225. I was 155. And by the time I got back into the world, I was 225 pounds. And I could push 225 20 times. I fell in love. When I saw my first little muscle on this little skin, I said, oh, man, okay. And, I, I, you know, I'm addicted to whatever I do. I said, okay, I can do this. I didn't think it could work for my body. I've been told, you know, you have a metabolism. He showed me how to slow it down. I did get pregnant, too, though, Sergio. That's what he didn't tell me about. He just said, eat everything, and then you're going to get on the treadmill at the end, and it's just going to fall off. So I ate everything all the way up to 315 pounds when I got diagnosed. I was 315 pounds, Sergio. What were you eating? You're talking meat, you're talking eggs, everything. Yes, sir. 10,000 calories a day, 40 pounds of chicken breast a month, whey and casein three, four, five times a day. Did that for 17 years. But I could push 450 pounds 10 times. I could pull, I could pull seven, 800 pounds on a deadlift. I could squat 405 to warm up. Like I was, this was all because trying to offset the pain and I'm in the street and I'm trying to, you know, the more money you get, the more paranoid you get. Now you got to be unapproachable and it's just all this garbage that comes with the lifestyle. And I had started a marketing company. Uh, we did the Be Seen, Being Green college music tour. Made about $600,000 in one night. Like, I, life was going good. Like, I figured out how to diversify into promotion and jingle production. That's how I'm able to edit the way I had a, a mentor named Butch Stewart. He's famous for doing all the black McDonald's commercials in the 90s. All of them. And he was my mentor in my school. And he taught, he said, look, what I'm going to show you how to make $30,000 in 30 seconds at 12. And he said, it's by telling this story within this, when this is before Instagram. This is, so when, when that stuff came, oh, we only got 30 seconds. I was happy. I was like, man, I've been doing this. Everybody, there ain't enough time. And, and so. I'm giving you little pieces of what you see and how he able to do it. I had an amazing digital mentor that showed me, but that's why I had the studio. You're like, how do you have, why do you have a studio? Because I had this guy that's like African-American royalty in production and advertising that knew my mom, knew her situation. And in reflection, I see he was trying to give me a fishing pole because he knew I was going to be by myself. It's crazy. It's crazy how this played out. He's instilling in me. Nobody teaches you jingles production before you get to Columbia College. I'm just, it just doesn't work like this. Nobody shows you how to make 30 grand in 30 seconds. It's just not something people are showing people how to do, Sergio. So life was going good. And I went there just to say that it was going so good that I wasn't checking in with this doctor that I'm asking for on January 4th. I had totally totally kind of pushed him away 
because I felt like he lied to me. Now, this is a part of the story a lot of people don't know. Like, I had opportunities in basketball, but nobody covered neurofibromatosis surgeries for 98 years. You want to hear the criminal part? This is a whole documentary for you. For 98 years, the insurance lobby got the government, Big Pharma, and they all came together to lobby to get these tumors that are the conduit to the worst cancer on earth, get them categorized as moles and cosmetic so they wouldn't have to cover our surgeries. Oh, wow. Moles don't create cancer. You know how many people died because they were denied access? People have their opinion about Barack Obama, but let me tell you something about Barack Obama. They might did one, two, maybe three operations pro bono, but not 11 at $4 million. It just, I'd be dead. I would be dead if Barack Obama didn't get elected and go against the insurance lobby and change the pre-existing condition law. When people talk about this pre-existing condition thing, it rubs me around the wrong way because I've watched too many people die because they've been refused surgery because their cancerous tumors are coated as moles. What type of evilness is that, brother? We didn't do anything but be born with this. This isn't because we were bad citizens or our lifestyle behavior. We woke up, man, in life with this situation. And the whole industry turned their back on us. So my mother, being the mother she was, I had pain in my knee from my tumor when I was in high school. And what is she doing? She's trying to advocate and lobby to get the tumor removed. But they're telling her $25,000, Sergio. It's nuts. $25,000 for something genetic that should be covered like everything else that's genetic. And they're not. And so what? The hospital, my doctor calls my mom, hey, we got this study. Well, you can get the surgery for free in return for Dewan's pictures and his likeness for research. And we keep the tumors. You get the surgery. Everybody's happy. This is in the pinnacle of my basketball career, Sergio. Where I'm from, no matter if Jesus came down and invited you to breakfast, if your ass is not at practice August 1st, you forfeit your spot on the team. It's nothing personal. We all know the rules of Coach Boss. And I asked my doc, I said, look, doc, I need to be right by August 1st. This is in June. I said, I'm not willing to do this surgery if it's going to affect my ability to jump, do wind sprints, or do anything I need to do to secure my spot on that team. Because once again, Sergio, before she died, that was a very viable option in either securing uh, more scholarship. It was just for the family. Like, so basketball was a big deal. And I asked him, I thought, He's like, D, you know, it's subcutaneous. That, that means, for you guys who don't know, it's above the skin. So it should be minor, and you should be back to noon. He didn't know, though. This was a, 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 a calculated guess. And Sergio, I wasn't who I needed to be. My legs started bleeding to coaches like, look, Evans, I love you, but you're not ready. I'm going to have to give your jersey to somebody else. You can be like wow. the manager or something. Wow. And 
that was August, and then I, I lost it September 13th. You know, I lost the two things, man. The two things I was waking up every morning for in like 60 days, man. So I was angry at him. I was like, this dude minimized. I would have never did the surgery. I just wouldn't. I would have waited, man. I needed to be on that team. And I felt like, you know, when she died, I'd at least been able to lean on my team. I felt like I didn't have nothing. I wouldn't have been in the game because I'd have had a basketball team. And at the university, the last time I saw him was high school. I'm 35 years old, a grown man. And the last time I saw him, I saw him at the children's hospital. So imagine me at 35 coming to the pediatric hospital, having to sit in little pink chairs. Little pink, literally, Sergio, I'm sitting in little pink chairs waiting for my doctor. They're like, where's the kid at? And I'm like, I am the kid. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Evan. You're his patient. I'm like, yeah. It's a long story. Can you please get him? Because after a while, I'm sitting there. Other people come in. Are you okay, sir? Like, yeah. I'm waiting for a doctor. Who's your doctor? Doctor Townsend. Oh, okay. They whispering, and then he comes. Man, Duan, I thought. I didn't know what to think. You just disappeared. I said, Doc, you know, I was angry at you. We talked briefly right there as he received me. He said, let's go upstairs. We went upstairs, and he's like, man, what happened? I said, man, Doc, that surgery, man, I wasn't able to play, man. After that, like, it didn't work out like you said. And I feel like you weren't honest with how I took it. And when I was 16, like, you, you just minimized it so I could do this surgery. And my life, but I lost my mom. I lost basketball. And my life just went on a downward spiral. And I've been holding you responsible. But I need your help. And I know it's not your fault. You were doing what you knew, you know. But I need your help. I don't know what's going on, but something's not right. Now, I'm 315. I don't really have a neck. And my back is crazy. It's just, Rrr. and he's like, all right, get on the table, D. He said, man, you're, you're huge. I said, yeah, I've been, um, been powerlifting because it keeps me at peace. He said, you're huge. I said, yeah. And he's rubbing where I'm saying the pain is on my spine. He said, man, I feel a lot of muscle, but I don't, what you're describing, I should be able to feel. I'm like, doc, it's there. Just keep moving around. You'll, you'll find it. And he's rubbing about six minutes ago. He said, D, um, and he reaches for his prescription pad. I say, here we go. He doesn't believe me. I didn't say that out loud, but sure enough, he said, you know, you've been training and it might just be a, a real bad, like, strain. A lot of people get the pinched nerve and he went down that. I said, Doc, listen, I know pain. This is, this is different. Something is not right. And I kind of said it in a way when he's trying to spin off into the, let me give you some muscle relaxers and some painkillers and just come go and then come and kind of made it. not seen, but he knew that I'm really not leaving this hospital till we figure it out. Cause I don't, I don't feel like I got another day to be honest. I, I'm in here on my knees begging for you. I, I don't, that's why he said, but D I don't, I don't, he said, you know what? Let, let's do some slides. 
He said, let's do some slides, not because he believed me or he felt anything, but because he wanted to show me that it was pain and that I'm crazy. And that you're training too hard. And he kept saying about the weight, but the weights are only supposed to go a certain limit. And, blah, 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 blah. and as I'm leaving out of the his door and then coming through the common area where the nurses are, they're cracking jokes. Mr. Muscle Man's in here crying about back pain. They're laughing at me, like cracking jokes. And I leave, go downstairs. I'm hurt. I couldn't get mad, but I could hear them. They think I couldn't hear them. I could hear them laughing and chuckling and whispering. And, but I, I am. I'm a huge monster, and I'm crying. You know, I go down there, and they do the slides. Now, anybody watching this, you understand that when a radiologist does slides, they never release the slides without a report. Period. There's no, like, do slides and then, and no. My slides beat me upstairs. It hadn't been 10 minutes. Usually, you got to sit there for another hour or two. But somehow, my slides beat me to the office. When I come through that door the second time, you could cut the energy with a butter knife. Something was different. The nurses are looking at their feet. They're not whispering. They're looking down. Nobody's laughing. The energy is thick. His door opens. He won't even look me in the eye. I said, here we go. Walk in. He's like, sit down, Dean. He said, man, I'm sorry. I, I was wrong. Screen comes up, pulls up the slide. He said, man, there's a substantial mass flush on your spine. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure if it's if it's operable just because of where it's at. And um you know you know how this goes. And I was like, Doc, what are you saying? He's like, I just don't think that they're gonna allow us to operate. And everybody watching, you gotta understand that hospitals don't do operation because we want them to do them. They do them based on previous success so they don't get sued. So it's not a liability. They're not just doing risky things. And then they go out of business because they knew better than that. And in my situation, they have never successfully made an excision of that size on somebody's spine. We must understand that my cancer is bone cancer. Your spine is a bone. So there's all these different variables that I see from a business perspective. They're like, man. So what he tells me is, I believe he knew it was cancerous, but he still was giving me, we were at, it's a mass. Okay, we weren't at, it's cancer yet. He's like, man, this is what, this is what I'm proposing, D. Um, and, and because I want to make it up to you, because everything you said, I want to go to the board. I want to go to my peers and I want to plead a case. I already know what they're going to say. They're going to say this is too risky. And so give me like 24 hours and I'm going to let you know if we'll be able to operate. He said, but this is serious. This is a big deal. You were right. And I apologize. This is not a good situation. We say goodbye. Well, at least I know that I'm not crazy. And I knew it was something in me. I knew it, Sergio. I knew it with every inkling of my being. And that was the longest, one of the longest 24 hour periods of time I've ever ever experienced. And that phone rings 
And he's like, guess what? I said, what? They're going to allow us to operate if you sign waivers to exclude us from responsibility. I said, Doc, I said, you know, I don't know to be happy or sad, but I'm just glad that you're not telling me that it's over. And what he did was he kind of, I said, how did you do? He said, man, have you ever watched the show House? I said, yeah, I'm a big fan of House, actually. He said, you know how when House is doing the same thing, it's 30 physicians, it's the chief of the medical staff, and it's him up there trying to sell this case of why we should do out of this out-of-the-ordinary procedure that's going to get the hospital sued for everything it owns, <laughs> and somehow he gets everybody to agree. He said, D, I just want you to know, if this doesn't work, they're going to take my license. I said, what? He's, he said, yeah. He said, look, nobody agreed with me, but I'm telling them. I said, man, if anybody's going to make it, it's this kid. And he said, I explained how you were mad at me and the whole situation. And they basically said, we're not going to stop you. But if this doesn't work out, this the hospital's not taking this. This is you. And that's kind of how this, how, they, how this works. Like They were like, look, we're going to support it, but this is on you. And, and that's when me and him... You know, he came through for me, Sergio. He, he really came through for me. I've known him since I was six years old. He's literally my pediatric neurologist. He's the only doctor that I that I I, I know. So we got a, a surgery date, and it was in a few days because this was an emergency. This was literally an emergency surgery that he made happen. And so, long story short, they removed. Um, I'd say three days later, removed the two pound, seven centimeter tumor um, that was flush on my spine. It took nine hours to remove that from my body. And then they made me wait for two, two weeks for the pathology. You know, we celebrated that it was a successful um, excision. But then once that wears off, now you're on pins and needles. If it, For those who don't know what the pathology report is, it's, you know, determines if it's malignant or, or benign, meaning cancerous or non-cancerous. And so, you know, I was happy. And then I started getting anxiety as we moved toward when he was supposed to reach back out. And I get the call. All right, D, come back to the hospital. We got your reports. I said, you can't just tell me on the phone. He's like, nah, come to the hospital. I said, all right. So head to the hospital. Man, Sergio, I'm, I'm happy because I think that this is it. And then I come through that door and receive the same energy I did when I came up from the radiologist. And I said, oh, come on, man. He sat me down again. He got the same energy. He looked me in the face, Sergio. He said, man, D, it's, it's malignant. It's positive for MPNST. And that's a lot of it. He said, your whole tumor is black. And those are the pictures. That, I think you have copies of those pictures. He said, like, I don't even know how you're alive. This thing has been in you for at least four or five years. Wow. I don't, he said, I don't, it makes no sense. Do we have permission to take pictures? I sign all this stuff so they can start doing. 
It doesn't make sense. Like, this is a healthy, this tumor is healthy, but it's sick. And you should be like, that should have took over your lungs. And he's, this is how he's talking. He said, but D, I mean, I don't know how you made it this far, but, you know, to try to fight this and you're this far into it, I don't know. I said, you, he said, you might want to meet with the hospice nurse. Wow. Um, you know, figure out an exit plan so you don't put your family through this. That's what the man told me, Sergio. I might want to meet with the hospice nurse and figure out an exit plan from life. Go plan my death with the hospice nurse. I said, Doc, like, that's not an option. Like, I'm not being you, you know, metastasization is with, with I say I understand that. You know, I say this in a lot of my, my, my speeches and, and keynotes, but it's the honest to God truth. When he offered me a path to quit, I entertained it for about three seconds. And then I tapped into my mom. It was like my mom came right into my spirit. And it's sitting there like air smacking me. Like, dude, snap out of it. Like, what are you talking? Hello? Hello? Unless he talked to God or he's going to kill you, how can you give up on your life based on what happened to everybody before you? She just started talking to me, Sergio. I was crying. But I said, Doc, look. And I told I told him, unless you talk to God or you're going to kill me, it's impossible. And I say, you see my arms? It's impossible. You see my, do you see me? It is impossible for me to give up on my life right now in January for a June death date. And I don't, I feel like I'm hurting in pain, but I don't feel like I'm dying or I'm dead. I do feel like something grave has happened to me trauma wise. But this heart, like I feel I'm ready for whatever. He said, D, but you, you know that with neurofibromatosis and MPNST, everything lights up on the pathology. So Sergio, not only did the tumor they took out light up, every big tumor in my body lit up like a Christmas tree. So being that there's no research dollars for real for us, there's really no plan of action. There's two mindsets. There's either let it progress or go on the treasure hunt. The treasure hunt means that every NF doctor knows that bigger tumors have a higher propensity of converting into malignancy. So that's nothing scientific. That's we need to remove everything that's big on the slide to re- greatly reduce the chances of conversion, basically. So when I told him I'm willing to do whatever, Sergio, that set me up for a seven back-to-back nine-hour operation stint from January to November. I had seven back-to-back nine-hour operations. 220 tumors were removed over that course of time. The body, what people got to understand, when you have an operation, the whole process of operating is bringing your heart level close to death, creating grave trauma, sewing you back up, and then reviving you. And the body is just not designed to be 
bring, be brought close to death, come back up, be brought close to death. That's playing God. And eventually your body shuts down because it's unnatural to have this many surgeries. And, and I understand from his perspective why he's, you know, encouraging me to do hospice because what you're talking about to fight this thing is going to be a lot of surgery, a lot of stitches, a lot of pain. A lot of sitting in MRIs for multiple hours, and and that all that had to happen, but I was willing to do it. And after they removed the two hundred and twenty, I'll never forget. It was election day. It was November, November eighth or sixth. Um, and he was like, "Look, we need to keep operating, but we wanted you to have a great Christmas. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. We wanted you to have a great Christmas." And then the first of the year, we're going to get back to it. Now, in that Christmas break, this is when I met one of the most amazing beings I've ever met. And that's Master Vegan Chef David Choi. David Choi, man, I don't even understand how you get to where he is as far as compassion, integrity, and, and the whole living your life through the prism of service before self. And this man, the education he gave me, they don't teach in any school. It's a 3,000-year-old doctrine that usually gets passed down, used to get passed down through a dynasty type of situation, but it's definitely kept within the family. And this is why their culture does so well, because they understand. They understand what most of us don't. And that's the precious teachings of the past that move the culture forward. Like, if you don't understand how we got to be where we're at, like, you're not going to be able to thrive, you know what I'm saying, in forward years. And so in their culture, they protect that. And they only give it to people who they think are going to do the same thing. He has two sons. He has three now with me, but he has two sons that it wasn't their path. He said, this is your path. I don't know how you're my son, but you're my son. How did you meet Master David? David, um, multiple mutual friends because of who we are in the Lifetime Fitness community. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very big deal in the Lifetime community, and so is he in the sense that you know, we've been part of the part of their situation for you know more than fifteen years, and everybody knows because we help people. Even when before I got sick, I was just that guy in the gym, and he happened to be a medicinal monk. So he's he's bringing people back to life. And I heard about him. My thing is, Sergio, he was the vegan guy, and I didn't want nothing to do with that, man. I'm I eat chicken breast, man. I, I don't. This is how ignorant. Men are. Like, I knew this guy could possibly save my life. And the first week, I'm ducking him. You know, I, I, I said, man, as soon as I talk to this dude, that's the end of this chicken. I got to eat a little more chicken. I'm dying, Sergio. And I'm talking about, man, how can I eat? How can I maximize my chicken exit? This is the type of things that I'm thinking about instead of how do I preserve my life and get everything I can from this man? So I set these appointments. And then go to the wrong location on purpose. I, I say, meet me at my gym and then go to his gym. Oh, man, I thought you, oh, man. I don't <laughs> we need some more chicken. <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened. So 
the third day I tried to do that, it was my gym. We were supposed to be at his gym. And I'm sitting in the cafe just because he knows everybody. He called in there. Yeah, D's at the cafe, whatever. I don't know how this happened. But I'm in there. I know this meeting isn't going to happen. I know what I'm going to eat. It's him. I said, oh, hi, Chef Dave. He said, you know, I'm not going to. I don't chase people to help. He said, you want my help? Like, he knew I was on bullshit, Sergio. Like, I didn't even, like, I fell three. I was like, oh. He's like, I'm not going to chase you. Write your, if you want my help, write your address, okay, and your phone number down on there because we would communicate via email on this napkin, okay, and I'll be at your house on Sunday and left. Sunday came, Sergio, and a man showed up with 21 plant-based meals and a copy of the China study. And I began to talk. He said, look, I don't want to talk. You don't walk in my house. And told me, you don't want to talk. He said, I, I don't want to talk. I want you to read the first 54 pages of that book. I want you to eat this food to the best of your ability. And we'll talk next Sunday. I said, he's out. And I, in my head, I'm like, this dude is just going to walk in my house. Tell me to sh- shush me. Tell me what I need to do. And he'll see me in a week. He don't want to hear my voice. I needed his help. And I know that I have been ducking. So Sergio, I'm pissed. He leaves. Who does this guy think he is? Man, he's walking my house. I get to Thurman and I get to where Dr. Campbell is talking about his father's cancer journey. And he can't understand how someone can get colon cancer when they're the farmer that grows all of the food. Like it's controlled. Like this is what we do. And he said, I'm a PhD, and it doesn't make sense how my father got cancer. He grows all his food, and this is a farm with farm people. He said, it wasn't until I'm in the Petri dish, and I noticed when I administered cancer cells, or I'm sorry, administered um, dairy and casein to the cancer cells in the rat, it would manipulate the tumor size. He said, I scratched my head and said, that doesn't make sense. He said, and then I started doing more elaborate studies on the effects of of, of milk and dairy and, and the proliferation of the tumor. And I had to come to a scientific conclusion that casein, whey protein, all dairy products promote tumor growth. So as you know, when I read that, the hair stood up everywhere. I said, oh, it was me. It was me. It was my lifestyle behavior. I'm even getting goosebumps now. And when he came back that Sunday, I was just humble. He was like, what's wrong? He said, man, I said, man, I know why you didn't want to talk because I would have told you, look at this. And, uh, until I got to that point where I'm eating the fuel of the tumors. And that's been my behavior for 17 years. It's me, man, Sergio. That humbled me. In that moment, I was totally, I said, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. I don't care how crazy it is. And he said, this is about blind faith, D. I don't know how to cure or kill cancer. That's not what we believe. We believe in harmony. I do know how to live with it. Because every single human being on the planet 
has cancerous cells, D, but the common denominator in every cancer patient situation is the acidic environment in their body. He says cancer needs a certain environment to thrive. And in certain people's bodies, you know, it thrives for different reasons. But acidity is the ingredient needed scientifically for this to happen. He said, so the first thing we're going to need to do is get rid of, and he hit me in my stomach, Sergio. And my stomach was, it was very big. I was over 44. He said, this right here is the problem. He said, how many times do you chew your food? <laughs> I don't even know that I chew it. I just, you know, I just eat. He said, this is what's wrong with the Western world. A lot of the problems are simply there's undigested food sitting in everybody's gut because they were in too much of a rush to simply chew. He said, you have roughly between 25 and 30 feet of gastrointestinal tract from your mouth to digestion and then another few feet to your rectum. He said, but no matter what, the food must travel through a hole that's compressed into six inches, no matter what, in eight hours, D. He says, so think about that. If you chew three times for breakfast, you chew three times for lunch, you chew three times for dinner, at the end of that day, you can't be naive to think that clumpy things have made it through 30 feet of anything. And after you pass that eight-hour window, you have a very good chance of it staying with you and you only being able to get rid of 70% of the waste. He said, people train their body to retain undigested food. And then you see it pour into the rest of your life. He said, until you get rid of your visceral fat, your organ fat, and that's the sludge on the other side of your skeleton. He said, people don't really understand how the body works. They're worried about this subcutaneous fat. That's not the fat that's killing us. That's not the fat that's creating the uric acid that fuels cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and everything else that's wrong with human beings. That's on the other side of your ribs. There's no way to get that other than liposuction or giving up the things that put it there in the first place. I said, man, it, it all makes sense. What is, so, so what are you saying? I'm saying that you're going to have to give up everything you love. What does that mean? Meat, dairy, yeast, and sugar. I said, I might have did that. I said, that's everything. I mean, said, What's left? Everything. <laughs> I said, I said, what? He said, do you got to understand? Let me just tell you why. He said, have you ever seen the show Naked and Afraid? And they're out in the wilderness and your body composition is going to be based on what you can provide yourself in the wild with nutrients. He said, this is the process that is going to happen because at about four to six weeks of fasting, he said, I'm not saying starve yourself. I'm saying recreate an alternative for me find an alternative for the dairy, find an alternative for the gluten, and have find a natural alternative for your sugar craving. And you're going to fast from the real meat, dairy, yeast, and sugar. 
He said at about four to six weeks. He said six weeks for you because you kind of fat. This dude has no filter. He said, he said, he's still call me fat. He said, he said at about six weeks, your body is going to go into what we call starvation shock. He said when people starve to death, your body naturally eats all the undigested food, the old food, the good fat, and it eats and it thrives off of what's there. He said, the next mechanism of starvation is it moves on to your muscle. And then it thrives off your muscle. And then you die. He said, we're doing the same process. But instead of starving you to death, um, you're implementing these plant-based substitutes. But each week after the sixth week, you should start noticing like your abs come up, your first two up here, up under your, your breast. Well, I didn't know abs. Nobody knows your abs really start here. Nobody knows. They talk about a six-pack. We're really supposed to have a 10-pack. Nobody starts them. Nobody. I just like, screw them first three. We're just going to do the lower three and then tell the world that's all you need. So he's like, you're going to first see these two up under the breast. And this means that it's working. I'm just, I'm in, but I'm waiting. It's sounding so crazy. I'm like, man, why nobody else has talked about this? I'm waiting for it to fail. I'm positive. I'm waiting, but I'm like, this is going work, but I'm going to try it. Doctor's telling me to go to hospice. I have no other options. And week seven and eight, man, bro, I got these. I got one of these two packs right here and these two packs right here. And I was just sitting there amazed. I lost 115 pounds in like six months. But he showed me the baking soda. Um, protocol, which is basically flushing your body with aluminum-free um, baking soda, because baking soda is the most alkalinic substance that we can consume as human beings. But when you drink baking soda and you have a gut full of undigested anything, there's going to be a massive explosion. And this is kind of how you kickstart your detox process. And then the lifestyle is kind of the maintenance. But the two things that saved my life from David Choi was the tumor protocol, which I still to this day do before I start my day and before bed. And the reason why we focus on turmeric is because we observe the Indian culture. And if you think about India, no matter how good they do in tech, they still haven't figured out the plumbing and just just the whole water situation. But yet they live longer than most cultures and don't have a what we call a correct plumbing system. Like some there's cross-contamination. I'm just saying. But it doesn't bother them. And my teacher points to the high curcumin levels in their blood that's created by turmeric. Everything they do has turmeric root in it. And so when he began to teach me, he's like, you need to start thinking about immune. Everything is immune system. And your immune system is in your gut. No matter what anybody tells you, it's all about your gut and your core beat. As long as you keep your gut and your core fine, you're not going to cure your cancer, but your cancer can't do anything without the food. I need you to under. He kept hammering that in my head. Cancer is not an external invasion. You were born with it. Cancer didn't come and like land in you. It was here the whole time. What were you doing to cause it to go crazy? That's this whole his whole philosophy, there's dis-ease. And, and if you can control the dis-ease, 
and, and turn the dis-ease back into harmony. Like, screw winning the cancer battle for the W. You could squeeze 10, 15, 20 years, is what he's telling me, 10 years ago. I said, 10 years? After this dude is telling me I'm going to die by June? This dude just told me 10 years. And I believe him. Wow. Shameless plug. I'm at 10 years and, and, and two months. Congratulations, brother. Yes, yes, yes. So he's telling me all of this. I did everything he did. And then we get to January 1st. Doc is ready to cut me. He's excited. He's ready. Yeah, I had a great holiday season. I met Master Vegan David Chuck. Guess what he did? He's fed Oprah. He's fed Michael Jordan. He's fed Phil Jackson as a Zen master because of him. Man, you need to meet him. He has a cancer. He was like, D, there's no scientific proof behind idiots. He just pulled all the way. I said, I just said he fed, he was responsible for the little Oprah and, and Fair Michael Jordan, like in his restaurant, like their whole championship run. That don't, yeah, D, that's great, but we're talking about cancer. And I said, okay. And so I'm at that pre op. Anybody doing, has had operations, you know, you have the pre op appointment the week before the actual surgery. So at the pre op appointment, they do a current slide to match up against the existing slide to confirm. And everything is where it needed to be in where it was in November when they let me go home. And something very interesting happened, Sergio. We went from there's something interesting on your lungs in November. You said, I don't think it's anything, but there is something on your lungs. Well, I don't think it's anything. To, you know, D, your, your slides is something interesting is he don't think I remember that. Something interesting is still going on with your lungs, but this was in a negative way when he said it in November. We've all of a sudden gone to, oh, you know, I don't want to postpone this operation that was emergency surgery in the end of the world. So I want to wait till February. Something, something, yeah, something interesting is going on. Now, I just put two and two together that it must be interesting good because you just postponed my operation. All I've been doing is doing what the magic monk has been telling me, drinking dirt, eating dirt. You know, I'm doing all this crazy stuff, man. I, I got to do everything I do. I'm like, this. hey, do not get it confused. Becoming plant-based was the hardest thing I've ever done. I could not get none of it down my throat. It takes about eight weeks for your palate to change. If you can make it through those eight weeks, man, you'll live to 115. It's a hard eight weeks, though. It's, it's always hard. Especially when you're 300 pounds. You love food. Like, that's your... My job is to eat and get big. And and he's like, you have to eat dirt, though. And it was hard, Sergio. But we get to February. This dude says the same thing. D, I still want to monitor. I said, Doc, listen, man. I don't think you understand. Like, when I get ready for an operation, I train... Like, Mike Tyson is fighting me. Like, this is the type of rigor because I know it's nine hours. And so in my head, cancer can go anywhere because I have tumors everywhere. So my body needs to be, like, the better than the best professional athlete. That's just my mindset. Like, I, being a professional athlete means nothing to me. I need to be better than you. You can't do what I do, you know. But I need my physicality to be able to take rigor. For nine consecutive hours, I'm on some endurance stuff, Sergio, in my mind. And I tell him this. And he's like, well, 
I just want to monitor. Um, I understand, but it's nothing to worry about. It's just, and Sergio, we get to March, and I say, Doc, listen, I understand whatever, but I need to see my slides. I kind of demanded to see my slides. Do you know there was absolutely nothing on the slides in January? There was nothing on the slides in February, and there was nothing in the slides on March that matched up with what was on the slide in November. Meaning, whatever David Troy had me doing had reversed or disintegrated or whatever you want to say happened. All I know is that my lungs were clean and clear and his official explanation had evolved into, it must have been phlegm. Wow. It must have been phlegm, Sergio. Phlegm. And that's kind of how the D. Anthony Evans, David Choi, father and son relationship began. And for the last 10 years, free of charge, this man has fed me 21 plant-based meals, $1,100 worth of pine nuts for 10 years. The pine nuts that I was privy to before we landed in Hawaii come from a 2,000-year-old tree in Tibet. So they're $80 a pound. And I did four pounds a week. We're talking about $1,100 this man provided for me for free. And what he told me is, he said, I'm going to make you the strongest, the most intelligent alternative thinker as it pertains to cancer and health in general. And I'm going to push you up into the world. And how you're going to pay me back? is you're going to do a 360 and you're going to help anybody that's raising their hand. Wow. That's how you're going to pay me back. So when you, you know, I figure out what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing, I got a debt to the divine and the David Chor. This is what I'm doing. This is I'm going to my mom. This is my whole life. It's about scaling up this message and scaling up this information, scaling up this education to have a broader impact because I have all of the tools that we need as society, including a tangible, intangible story to rest everything I'm saying upon and 10 years of proof of living this information in real time. It's not something that I'm re recommending that, you know, I heard or saw on Dr. Phil or something. No, this is a discipline structure determined self-effort to get up every day and adhere to these principles. That, that's, what, that's what this is, his behavior. He, he gave me a behavior to model my life around and, and made it clear to me that you only become a master, you only become good at what you focus on and practice the most. That's no matter what you're doing. Doing movies, you only going to get good doing a lot of movies. Editing, you only get good as fast as you can edit. You only get good fast at editing when you put in 10, 20,000 hours, you know? And that's what I apply to everything in this lifestyle and I apply to my message. Practice, practice, practice. A real Shaolin master, he's a 100 years old. He's still practicing with his students because he understands nothing stays still. Each moment he's getting older. Each moment 
there's a younger dude getting stronger. He understands that even the master can't be the master forever. Right. We don't understand that, most of us, uh, any of those principles. So I just want my life in, in this fourth quarter to be the tangible proof, Sergio, man, of of self-accountability and putting it on yourself, not your circumstances, on yourself. Like, God doesn't make mistakes. This is hard for people who don't believe in any spiritual anything. It's not even about God. It's about something greater than yourself that allowed your foot to walk. The, the energy in you that you want to scratch your nose, but you don't say, hey, hand, scratch my nose. It's itching. Okay, that's an energy that you can't see, feel, or control. It just does it. When you start looking at life through that prism, like, man, it's something else going on. Like, I didn't tell my head to move side to side. I thought it, and it did it. Like, that's the power we have inside of us, but we take it for granted. That You take it for granted. Like, I can pick this cup up. Why? You didn't say, hey, hand, pick the cup up. Brother, man. All right, I'm getting off to my <laughs> other. I'm glad you 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 take them. Hey, I'm, I'm, they're Ooh. not ready for that, Sergio. That's another kind man. Of I could I could talk to you for like for hours and hours and hours. You're, you're such an inspiration, man. You're a living testament to the fact that these principles work. And just to wrap up, I got one last question because we have a lot of young people, artists listening from all over the world. Where do you find the energy to do what you do? Because I don't think people understand that uh your morning ritual let's talk about that and what gives you the energy because you talked about this as a lifestyle but not something you do sometimes this is something you do all the time right so just i want to just wrap it up on that and just give us some words of inspiration to keep us going when we don't feel like getting getting to the gym and you know and eating that big pie or pizza or whatever it is you know everything's a mindset um, that, that's the biggest lesson that I've learned. Everything is a mindset and that the only thing we have control of is the way we respond to the turbulence that happens to us. And then when you, you start right there, that this is going to be a turbulent life, it's easier to learn the different tools to kind of deal with that turbulence because there's a choice. You, you're going to figure out ways, rituals, and tools to deal with those emotions or you're going to become a slave to them. And then they're going to, it's going to bleed out into the other parts of your life. So for me, my teacher made it very clear. Say every day, there's no perfect 24 hours for anybody, no matter what they project. D. So coming into your day like that, you need to maybe empty out your cup before you even present yourself to the world or to any other human. You need to walk with God Whoever you believe in, show some gratitude verbally. Thank you for the day. Thank you for this gift. And then understand that several people last night when they went to bed, D, did not realize they weren't going to wake up this morning. He said, when you, when you look at it like that, there's not a bad day. A bad day is when you don't wake up. He said, so on your most turbulent morning, your most turbulent, painful, he said, you remember the person who didn't even get an opportunity to experience that turbulence. And I hear that plan in me every single morning. And then it became a part of me. And then I found myself mentoring my people the same way. And 
So for me, it's training for three to six hours. And it started after the surgeries. Um, I, I was just a lot paranoid. I couldn't get a lot of sleep. Um, and so I began waking up earlier and earlier. And when I met him, he was like, listen, sleeping is not going to be something that you do anymore. The body only sleeps when it's tired. The whole notion of there's a form for, no, it's, it's not how it works, D. You're going to be a rester. I said, what? He said, you're going to be one of those people that are always going to be firing, but you're going to have to manage when you can take rest. And you'll probably only sleep for four time, four hours at a time. But if you manage that the correct way, you'll be able to do this. Now, I used to get angry when I wake up in the middle of the, of the, of the night. But now it's like God tapped me. It's like, oh, it's time. And it's the same time. And this is how you manage and train your body. Everything that we know is a learned behavior, including fear. Everything is a learned behavior, including fear. Think about a baby. A baby is born with no fear except falling when he falls and cries or a loud sound. But we all know that a baby will see a tractor trailer in the street coming and continue to walk because it has no fear. It's the parent in every movie. Make the baby's walking. But there's a lesson in that scene that's in every movie. It's that we not born with fear. Okay. We're taught fear. And that's why fear for D stands for false evidence appearing real. And in your journey, I encourage you to study etymology. That's the study of words and its origin. And just understand there's an education on top of the education. And when you learn that, things that you already know or thought you knew either become clear or you have a clear understanding. So I know that my 24 is going to directly affect the success of my life. And the management of that 24 is directly going to be a reflection of what you see. And if I don't compartmentalize that in a schedule that's conducive to success for me, it's probably going to be chaos. So I encourage everybody, get your notepad, write it down. First thing in the morning, I'm going to drink my turmeric and I'm going to do 10 jumping jacks. I don't want to do them, but I'm just going to do them because I haven't been doing them. And then in a week, do 20. And then in two weeks, you're doing 50. And my point is, change ain't going to fall out the sky, especially if you're me and Sergio's age. It's just not going to fall out the sky. You're going to get what you get. What you put out is what you get back, especially in this, in this turbulent time in the universe right now. There's no freebies. You see any freebies? The people in Ukraine getting freebies? No. It's hard right now in the world. It's hard for a lot of people in the world right now. Tap into their energy. Figure out how you can be an asset to those people over there. And I'm saying this because the reason I don't think about myself or cancer is because I'm too plugged into helping everybody else. It's hard to be thinking about D and what D is going through. I'm in pain from my head to my toe. I didn't even talk about this the entire time. I'm in pain right now. There are tumors over 84% of my body. And they feel like bees are stinging me. 
I move around a lot in this chair because I'm sitting on staples. Okay? But that's better than not being here. When the tumors start going crazy on me, you know what D does? D thinks about the kid, you know, in my email that was going to kill himself. Because he has my disease. He has these tumors all over his body. He's never dated anybody. Nobody's ever sat with him at lunch. He's being bullied. And he has access to Google. I didn't have access to Google. I couldn't type in how bad my life is going to be. But kids with my disease, our suicide rate is in the 26th percentile. Because we've been alone our entire life. My mother just happened to tell me that it was something wrong with everybody else. And I believed it. She told me my tumors were, were superhero things. And I, I went with it. And was I, you know, most kids don't have that foundation. So hurt yourself. This ain't no life waking up to pain and being happy. Like, how are you happy and you're being attacked all day? Use me as an example. Know that I'm getting attacked with knives, bee stings, and thumbtacks all day. But somehow find that that place where I can spread this light to everybody else. Yeah, it's a tightrope, but it's a lot better than not being here. Brother, so, Sergio, I'm going to close with be safe, be peace, be love. And everybody, just please continue to be amazing to you. And be stay tuned. Me and Sergio are going to do some really amazing things um, in, in the future, in the near future. We got work to do. Thank you, brother. You're you're a living miracle and 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 just a true inspiration, man. It's uh, amazing, man. Thank, Thank you for you, this brother. time and thanks for the beautiful words and for sharing this incredible, unique story, man. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it, um, and I look forward to to getting this out to the man. It's time. The world needs a feel good story, and they need a, a tangible a tangible blueprint to follow. That that's I get the credit to my wife, man. She said, you know, you give these amazing speeches, but then they they walk out the door and then life happens again and they forget what you said. And so, you know, Sergio, that's, I know you've seen on social media. That's why we're, we're doing these, these handbooks and things because my transition was hard. I, I was mentored by a monk. They don't enable you with anything. It's either show up or quit. And <laughs> don't speak. You show up, you're ready or you're not. You're not ready. Come back. And, and, but I understand that I need to meet people where they're at. So that's why we I partnered with, with his son, who's a who's a PhD. He has a, several degrees in muscles, in pharmacology. I don't know what there's not that Rocky doesn't do. But my teacher told me 10 years ago, when your brother graduates from the University of Brisbane, He's going to be able to prove everything that comes out your mouth. Again, I thought he was crazy. And here we are putting these uh, these products together so everybody else can have a, uh, even if you don't convert immediately, if we have another pandemic, I'm just going to let everybody know, going plant-based strengthens your odds, man. Ain't no, there's no thriving without an immune system. And I haven't heard that this entire pandemic. Nobody like beating the immune system drunk yeah. ever. I, mean, I just haven't heard the influencer. And that's why I've come out of my hole because a lot of influencers, by you not saying the right things, you're being a bad influence. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs>
Thank you, brother. I really appreciate this, man. And you're, you're changing the world one life at a time, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, too, sir. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you, brother.